care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello! Welcome back to Reply Guys. I'm Kate Willett. I'm Julia Clare. We are back from vacation. We are back uh, in my Park Slope apartment (laughs) at my dining room table covered with laundry. Ground zero of the revolution. (laughs) Exactly. Park Slope. (laughs) Park Slope. Yeah, those babies and strollers, they are really... uh, The revolution will be at the Park Slope food co-op. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The revolution will have kale. (laughs) Absolutely, it will. I used to live in Ridgewood before I lived here. Actually, I used to live in Crown Heights when I first moved here. I moved into a polyamorous commune when i first moved here in crown heights in crown heights yes it was with some people that i knew from san francisco of course yeah um i keep saying i'm never gonna live in another polyamorous commune i really am not polyamorous (laughs) um but uh i have lived in a few polyamorous communes i don't really know why i guess just because like you have that energy i do i do have that poly energy like i get hit on by couples way more than i get hit on by individual really yeah oh that's my man that's something that i i wish would happen to me i wish i would get hit on by couples i don't i i I have the opposite energy You know, I'm newer to leftism, so sometimes when I talk to my leftist bro friends, my Bernie brothers, as we have named them on the show. Our brothers and Bernie. Our brothers and Bernie. uh, I sometimes feel that they question my cred, which is fair. I am am newer to accepting uh, Bernie Sanders into my heart. Um, As your personal savior. As my personal savior. I I really need health care so I don't have to marry a fucking nerd. That's like my only other plan at this point is like marrying a nerd. I think, you know, that's it's a lot of our backups but so i feel like uh i do feel like one point that i do have some cred on is i have lived communally a lot like more than anyone i know i have i have shared with people i know how to share my alfalfa sprouts and my lsd i mean yeah that's one, that's one of the things that i hate about <laughs> some of our more strident brothers and bernie it's like Kate, you have walked the walk of of communism more than more than a lot of people who have spent years yelling about Marxist theory. <laughs> I think we need more people living in communes and less Marxist and Hegel theory. So yes, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, um, and I just flew in today. And flew in immediately, began to podcast. Um, as one does yes just, <laughs> uh but it was it was such a cool experience like the edinburgh fringe festival uh for our listeners that are unfamiliar with it is this giant festival in edinburgh scotland and uh, it's just such a mix of all types of performance theater circus um, there's a lot of stand-up comedy there a lot of like one person shows um it was it was awesome um how was your vacation julia well, uh, I, as I said last week, went on vacation with my parents to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, um, which was an experience. It was fun. It was just like, you know, typical str- stress. A lot of my my dad and I have uh, very 
animated political discussions uh but yeah it was not like because my dad is from massachusetts we saw a lot of his friends so it was nice to see to be around people who were like constantly giving him shit which is not something that i'm accustomed to um so that was it's we you know we love to say it yeah i mean it shouldn't fall the responsibility shouldn't fall all on women to have to like own our own dads our dads yeah Uh, i mean it should be (laughs) men should start stepping up and owning their dads as well Uh, my dad is the weirdest person alive he every time i had to explain him to someone i had to show them the tweets that he sends me which just pictures of big cats he loves tigers <laughs> the weirdest man alive uh he's really into that show serengeti on nat geo right now oh damn um he's pretty deep and he literally was talking to me about the show serengeti from the minute they were running previews of it and it was like a month out or something. like it was a big event in his life i think it's it's how people used to talk about like you know big television events like roots like that is my dad's roots is serengeti narrated by lupita nyongo so it was a big week on twitter uh and in the world yeah so david coke died and you know went to hell immediately yeah immediately started polluting it yeah started polluting it started trying to pass a right to work law down there and antonin scalia i'm sure it's right there behind him it was one of those weeks where like there was just so much kind of liberal and conservative but like it was more annoying from liberal people like moralizing being like we shouldn't say something bad about someone who just died and can i just go off on this idea for a minute who said that though besides Alyssa milano i didn't see anybody else i really didn't see any i didn't see anyone else famous doing it okay um i mean of course all the right-wing people like oh yeah absolutely ben Shapiro and stuff who's like why can't we all be civil and it's like oh my god dude <laughs> oh, you're ben so Shapiro. toxic and poisonous Ugh. yeah um but ben Shapiro was a, is a blogger yes <laughs> and a short king and a short king and i say that as a short king myself you are you are my personal short king yes um i like when we hug i feel really held by someone big and strong um (laughs) thank you i feel so feminine and delicate (laughs) that's my dream um so yeah i saw people like getting upset about like oh how can you say this stuff about this guy and like i just remember that it was like yeah it was kind of like that when john mccain died oh absolutely well yeah Yeah, i mean it's i think and scalia as well although i didn't see as much pushback on that i mean i think if someone lived a horrible life it is okay to make fun of them in their death you know what i mean like how many deaths are those people responsible for i mean in david coke is like a unique kind of evil reserved for when you amass that much wealth through just like raping and pillaging the land and other people's labor (laughs) like i don't know he this is a guy who is so evil that he's the was at one point the 11th richest person on earth and elected to live in wichita kansas ew can you imagine (laughs) yeah i mean the Koch brothers have been responsible for so much of the movement towards um, the hard right. You know, they really have... They kind of like pioneered climate science denial because there was a point 
where it was like more accepted in the Republican Party, I would say in the like early aughts, uh, that climate science was like pressing and real. And uh, Jane Mayer talks about this in Dark Money, and everyone should read Dark Money because it is incredible definitely better than that franken article it is. um yeah i have a lot of complicated feelings about jane mayer now uh because i love dark money i reference it like every week on the podcast so i'm really sorry but it's just a really thorough deep dive into how much not just the cokes but like a lot of those billionaire families mostly the cokes have poured money into specific um policy goals that personally enrich them climate science denial being one of them um coke industries generate 24 million metric tons of greenhouse gases every single year with certain people even like i don't i i can't imagine someone like this dying and not immediately just fucking tearing them apart like we did it in life because they deserved it in life and we can do it in death. Don't speak ill of the dead is only <laughs> applicable to someone I think who was not a major net negative to this earth. <laughs> I saw some really funny tweets about it this week. Okay. Here's, here's one from our friend, David Spector. Oh, incredible. Okay, this tweet. was amazing. Don't think Bernie Sanders is effective. He released his climate plan yesterday and already David Koch is dead. Amazing. An A plus tweet, an all time tweet. He had another one. David Koch dying is phase one of the, the Green, Green New, New Deal. Deal. That was awesome. Uh, Josh Gondelman, who was on the pod last week. David Koch has died in lieu of flowers. Please construct a shadow network of tax deductible shell companies to donate to the further perpetuation of environmental destruction and income inequality. Oh, so many good tweets. Uh, yeah, that was, it was like a fun day on Twitter. It was a fun... I mean, yeah, it, David Koch dying was a... I And I woke up extra early that day, and I was on Twitter like right when the news broke that David Koch died, and it was... Wow, what a, what a start to the day. Yeah, I was up early because I was in... Well, I was up early yeah. for New York time because I was in Scotland, which is uh, five hours ahead. And so I got to inform my Bernie Brothers group chat of the news. And that was fun. It was fun to get to share that <laughs> uplifting information. Josh is the one who texted me about it. He was like, someone's been reading your dream journal. <laughs> yeah. It says manifesting work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it. I think I'm proof that it does. So it was a hot week for Apply Guys online. So... David Koch dying really unleashed, I think, the saddest group of reply guys on all of the internet. And those are um, people who stand billionaires, people who, like regular people like you and me, who feel the need to... I don't know if we're regular people. We're you, pretty weird. No, you're right. Okay. Pe Non-rich people. Non-billionaires. Yes. That's definitely us. Uh, <laughs> um, who feel the need to defend billionaires uh it, it's just a it's a real uh it's a sickness and i don't understand it so i tweeted i you know you see a lot of these fucking publications memorializing david coke only referring to him as a philanthropist which is just hurts my brain and so i, I tweeted this uh 
this quotation by Theodore Roosevelt, uh, no amount of charity in spending such fortunes can compensate in any way for the misconduct in acquiring them. And it clearly got some people who name searched David Koch in my mentions. And one of them was this guy who said, so a libertarian who was pro-gay marriage and pro-abortion, who gave billions of their own money to charitable causes is evil. Yet someone like Bernie Sanders, who's never hired anyone in his life without the use of public funds, is a hero. Leftist logic is truly hilarious. And I was like, oh boy, that is, I love that. I got a similar response when I tweeted about how horrible jeff bezos is and i got a bunch of people in my mentions like who have you ever employed (laughs) like nobody man (laughs) yeah you're just like oh actually um i have a bunch of people locked in a warehouse that i'm paying seven dollars an hour right now i'm a very good person and they have to pee in water bottles and that is just as god intended um but yeah i mean that's the thing the thing that i kept saying over and over again was like um actually he supported gay marriage and abortion like the abortion thing is just totally fallacious because he actively gave money to anti-choice groups um he is he was a libertarian but he literally never supported anything that didn't personally enrich him so every deregulatory thing that he ever supported was so he could make money i don't this is not difficult I don't, and that's the thing. I don't understand the illness of these people who feel the need to defend billionaires who will never, who, I mean, these billionaires have never thought about any of us a day in their lives. They are only ever thinking about lining their own pockets. Yeah. It is that weird kind of like mental, I don't know. It's, it's just that weird thing where people have to live in this fantasy that they too could become a billionaire one day they immediately put themselves in the scenario as if they are the super rich person and that's why they oppose it even though they're not and it's like super rich people never do that for someone like you like someone who's of your financial standing. Yeah, they don't have to. Yeah, exactly. So we have a, a great episode this week. We have a longer interview that I did with my friend, Rachel Lark. Rachel was able to help get someone out of ice detention. And one thing that I learned from her is that there's actually no way that a person can get out of ICE detention if they don't have a U.S. citizen that's willing to be their sponsor. Wow. I think that for me, Rachel has been somebody that has really shifted the way that I see my own responsibility as a white person. You know, like I think that like it's easy to just kind of it's it's easy to tune stuff out you know and rachel's like not somebody that feels okay about just tuning stuff out and it's made me kind of like question a lot of things about myself and like my own activism and like what you know what i think i need to be doing or not so i think that this is a good interview and she also has some really um concrete suggestions you know people will be looking back at this time of history like wondering what we were doing or not you know mm-hmm. i think rachel's somebody that really put it in perspective for me this interview is like a little bit heavier than some things that we have on the show sometimes but uh i think 
that Rachel has a lot of great stuff to say, and uh, I really enjoyed talking with her, so give it a listen. Hello, I am here today with my friend Rachel Lark. She is a musician, uh, an activist, a political satirist. We are so excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks, Kate. It's good to be here. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. We'll get into your music in a little while because I think our listeners will also really love that. But the reason that I wanted to speak with you is because we've had some conversations about some work that you've done at the border. And I know for me, it really put in a different perspective what's happening there. A lot of stuff that I don't necessarily take away from reading the news, um, which I think kind of sterilizes it. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the activism that you've done with All Ultralato or any other organization. Totally. Um, yeah. And thanks for this opportunity. I think there's I think you're totally right that there's so much that the media um, is not sharing about what's going on for immigrants, both in this country and trying to get to this country. And um, there's a lot, um, there's also a lot of information out there and it's just hard to sift through it. You know, like I think we've talked before about how um, it feels like this is all new information, but actually once you sort of get intimately familiar with a lot of these details and realities, you start to see that the information is out there. It's just that there's so much that it's hard to keep track of and it's hard to make sense of. So I think that um, making time and space for conversations like this are is really important. So thank you. Um, but um, my journey with um, getting sort of involved in solidarity work with immigrants started about a year ago. Basically, I think for a lot of people, especially white women, when the news around family separation started breaking, um, I kind of, you know, it was a final straw situation for me. And I just thought, we got it. I, I got to do something like this is this is getting to be so horrific that um, just holding signs at the occasional, you know, protest of an ICE um, office is not really cutting it. Like there needs to be something more tangible, more direct that I can be doing to either fight this system of incarceration and torture or support immigrants who are fighting it. So, um, I was, I was started sort of looking for information about how to go to the border and, um, I was actually listening to, um, intercepted the podcast from the intercept, um, and they had Alice Sperry, this journalist, came on who was talking about accompaniment work. And it was the first time I'd ever heard this phrase, accompaniment. And she was saying that there's a movement of U.S. citizens going to the border and accompanying asylum seekers to their initial interaction at the port of entry with a border agent. And basically, in this way, they're weaponizing their privilege to keep these people from, you know, being denied entry or from being sort of scooped up into the ice vortex of torture and family separation and, and basically hanging on to their information so that they can advocate for them. So I just had this moment of like, great, that's something I can do. I'm going to do that. And I want to convince all my friends to do it. And I'm going to just like start this whole big thing of bringing all these 
artists that don't have day jobs that I know from the Bay Area down to the border to accompany some asylum seekers and let's like do this shit, right? So that was my plan. And um, uh, I figured I should do a little legwork um, and like figure out how this actually worked before I invited a bunch of white people to the border with me. So I, uh, I went down and ended up um, sort of getting sucked into a bunch of work that was all over the place. It was, we ended up accompanying immigrants to, um, confront the Mexican police about their corruption. Um, we, uh, helped get people out of an unsafe housing situation that they were in and in one of these sort of slums that have built up, uh, for different Central American immigrants in Tijuana. And, um, I just sort of had my mind blown by like the vastness of the work that was being done and didn't end up actually doing any of that accompaniment work. Um, initially I just sort of learned, I just was kind of a fly on the wall being supportive where I could and understanding like how much, um, was actually being done by these different organizations. Um, specifically I was working with an organization called Pueblo Sin Fronteras who ended up organizing the migrant caravan, which would eventually come to Tijuana and bring sort of the national lens onto Tijuana, um, in particular. And so that's what started it. And, since then, I have done accompaniments at the border. I've also started sponsoring um, a, a, a refugee in my house and placing refugees in other houses of people that want to sponsor. And, and we can talk about that a little bit more about how that process works. Um, I've uh, gone to D.C. and accompanied um, uh, Eduardo, who's the refugee I'm hosting, to speak at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights about the torture he endured in ICE detention. Um, and I'm trying to help um, facilitate a shelter here in the Bay Area, where I'm based, um, to basically be an immigrant-led emergency response uh, shelter so that the recently arrived immigrants who are here can actually do their own sponsoring and have autonomy over their own communities. Um, so that's kind of like my journey into all of this. And it's, it's ended up turning into far more like solidarity work and like really working with individuals than it is about like organizing protests, which used to be my understanding of activism. Um, and it's really kind of like opened my eyes to the depth of the problem, which is so much more than family separation. Um, you know, it's really a problem of mass, um, torture and also mass, um, delusion around our, our country's role in creating this crisis in the first place. Thank you so much. I think that was a really good jumping off point to ask a lot of other questions. Um, so one thing that you mentioned was the caravan. And I remember hearing a ton of this um, in the media and Trump was talking about it a lot. Um, and one thing that I think was a surprise to me when I first talked to you is this was actually a really organized movement of people. Um, and that was definitely not how it was portrayed, I think, at least in most mainstream news sources. 
Definitely. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. So Pueblo Sin Fronteras um, was this organization that started organizing migrant caravans a few years ago. And it's important to understand as well that the migrant caravan concept is not at all new. Um, when people travel, they always find each other. Um, this The path from... Um, you know, Central America to the United States is dangerous. There's um, cartels, there's violence, there's government violence. Um, there's, uh, at, at one point, there's this train that people have to hop that goes like something like 60 miles, 70 miles an hour called um, the beast. And like, it's a very dangerous journey and it's safer in numbers, right? So, so people have always sort of, found each other, formed these little pods to share information, keep each other safe. Um, but starting a few years ago, there started to be more of a political movement to organize these caravans. Um, and that's what Pueblo Sin Fronteras was born out of. as basically this completely autonomously organized um, uh, a group of people. And when I say autonomous, I mean something very specific, which is in Mexico, there's this specific brand of anarchists called the Zapatistas. And they use the term autonomous instead of anarchist. And really what that means is that all decisions are made by the entire group. They don't like elect people to be their leader the way that you do in a sort of democracy like we have um, it's all governed autonomously. Like the whole group has to sort of figure things out in a consensus based way and, um, make the rules as they go. And everybody fully participates in that process. So, you know, what ended up coming in, in the first migrant caravan that Trump got angry about, which I believe was in 2017, this was like a very organized, very impressive, um, very bold, group, a basically political organization of people who managed when they got to the border to stage a hunger strike where they successfully got humanitarian visas for 300 people. So when we, when we talk about this caravan, often like we don't understand how impressive what they did was like, this is a group that is probably some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. Yet they managed to force one of the most powerful governments on the planet, our government, to um, cater to their demands by staging a direct action at the border. And that is a victory that just does not get talked about. Now, the, this latest group of caravans that started um, last November, November 2018 or so, um, was much bigger and was started very consciously from Honduras and then swelled to a group that was essentially unmanageable, according to a lot of the organizers on the grounds. Like it, 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 the first caravan that staged this direct action was about 1,400 people. This latest wave in, in November 2018 was like 5,000. And the governments of both the U.S. and Mexico were ready to basically break up this caravan. So they sort of intentionally broke, broke up the caravan. Uh, there was a lot of infighting. It was just a very, very, very big influx of people. And the news spread about it quickly. So just new caravans started coming all the time. So what we have right now is not really a caravan situation, even though that word is still in play. Um, what we have is um, just 
a mass migration. Um, Honduras in particular is simply not a livable country. So people are just leaving and they're just leaving by you know, thousands and thousands at a time. So um, though there's still a lot of exciting organizing work happening, when we talk about the caravan now, we're not really talking about this unified political group that we were in the past. So one thing that I want to jump to is, you know, we have these detention centers. Um, several people um, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, and other members of the squad that we stand on this podcast um, <laughs> have called them out as concentration camps. And um, I was wondering if you have been to any of these detention centers. Um, and if so, if you feel like the portrayal in the media of what's going on there is accurate. Um, I the only time I went to a detention center was to visit um, Eduardo, the um, the uh, guy that I am sponsoring, and um, I didn't get a chance to tour the facility or see the conditions while I was there. I just was in a visiting booth, but I talked to him on the phone multiple times a week throughout his detention, and um, he endured what can only be described as torture. Um, he was uh, physically assaulted. Um, he was sexually assaulted. And then after that, he was put in solitary confinement. Um, when he first arrived at the detention center, they didn't give him food for six days. And they told him he can have food when he signs his own deportation order. Um, this is stuff that is actually run of the mill for these detention centers. Um, you know, some are slightly better than others, but um, the policies are clear and there have been leaked documents that that show that this is a policy of deterrence. The goal is to torture people enough so that they don't come. Um, I think it really speaks to the terror that they are fleeing, that they are still coming. And this pro this this um, strategy of deterrence, not only is it completely immoral and you know clearly illegal, but it's also ineffective because, you know, when people are seeing their young children get killed in front of them, they're, they're going to leave <laughs> that situation. There's nothing that can make them stay, even if it's the fear of being tortured in a U.S. prison. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, I've read all of the reports about um about these, you know, children with matted hair that are being, still being separated from their parents and are sick and are covered in lice and are, you know, eight-year-olds being forced to take care of two-year-olds, um, people drinking out of toilets as their own drinking water. Um, I, I believe all of it, and I believe it's even more widespread than you would know from watching the mainstream media. This is, this is a policy-wide approach to a humanitarian crisis. And it's really important also that people keep in mind, I think everyone realizes that the children that are being detained are innocent, but we can't forget about the innocent adults that are also worthy of our sympathy and are not deserving of being jailed at all, let alone being jailed and tortured. And that that is what's happening. These are innocent people who are following asylum law by presenting themselves at the port of entry at Ameri on American soil asking for asylum. And we are responding with locking them up, denying them food, and essentially torturing them into signing their own deportation orders en masse, where they have to go back to their country, 
which is unlivable again, and then try to do the entire journey over again. Can you say a little bit more about why you would use the word unlivable? Like what's going on, just to put it in perspective? Sure. So um, in Honduras in particular, the level of corruption is something that I think is very hard for U.S. citizens to comprehend. Um, this is a situation where there is no no separation between cartels, organized crime, and the government. Um, in fact, the, the the leader's own brother was arrested in Miami for smuggling cocaine. So, um, like, this is just a full-blown mob state. And um, everybody is a target for violence for essentially any reason at all. I, I actually have struggled to fully understand um, how, how, how easy it is to, to piss off the cartel um, because people will tell me stories about they crossed the wrong street and then they got kidnapped and tortured. Um, it, it's just, uh, it's a, I've, I've seen pictures that I wish I could unsee of, you know, people that I have spoken to who showed me pictures of their friends having been killed in front of them and they managed to escape, you know, being kidnapped by these cartels after watching someone get killed in front of them and then they flee. So like this is this just just imagine like a level of violence where you could be killed for essentially anything. Um, not to mention there are no jobs. There is no food. Um, and and it really can't be understated the US's role in creating this problem. Like this is this was a country that was livable at one point and we have essentially unleashed a full century of instability and corporate takeovers that have rendered the government unfunctional as well as the economy. It's just, it's just not, not a situation that I think anybody in this country would allow themselves to live in or allow anybody close to them to live in. When someone seeks asylum, um, can you describe what happens in that process? Um, maybe beginning from, yeah, beginning from the time that they reach a port of entry in the United States. Totally. So one important thing to note about our asylum law is that it is actually legal to ask for asylum at any point within a year of arriving in the U.S., no matter how you entered. So we talk about people entering legally and illegally. It's actually more of a bureaucratic distinction. Um, there are ports of entry where our government would prefer you enter, but it is perfectly legal to cross the border through a desert and then ask for asylum as soon as you meet a government official on U.S. soil. That's not illegal according to our asylum law. But um, talking about the process of actually, you know, sort of doing quote unquote what the government, what the U.S. government says is the right way to do it. Um, the way it works is you uh, you walk up to a port of entry and you say, um, I am requesting asylum. Now, what's supposed to happen, according to our asylum law, is that you then can cross into the U.S. And um, 
you have to pass a credible fear interview. And this is where you basically give the outline of why you're asking for asylum. There are a few strict criteria about what qualifies as asylum. Um, I personally think that that those criteria should be far broader than they are. But leaving that aside, it there's a lot of criteria, including fleeing from uh, targeted violence and um, being persecuted for uh, being you know part of your identity or your political or your religious affiliation. Um, and then you are able to uh, plead your asylum case and fight your asylum case in the U.S. You can be in the U.S. while you fight your asylum case. Um, what's So that's what our asylum law is, and it's very clear. What's happening right now is um, we are dealing with a new law that Trump passed called the Migrant Protection Protocols, one of the most ironic names for a law um, <laughs> that I've heard, uh, because what it forces um, immigrants to do is go back to Mexico to fight their asylum cases from Mexico. Um, whether or not they're from Mexico, like whether Mexico is their country of origin or not? Well, you know, I need to actually look into the details about this because the the law just changed again. And depending on when you air this podcast, it might have changed again. Um, so now there's this new law about like a third, you're not allowed to cross through a third party country to ask for asylum. You've got to, you've got to go back to the country that you're from. Um, but the, the migrant protection protocols from, uh, a few weeks ago, um, say that, yeah, even if you're not from Mexico, you have to go back to Mexico to fight your case from there. So they've been deporting people. They've been doing their credible fear interview and then put, sending them back to Mexico and forcing them to fight their case from Mexico. Keep in mind, there is no real sanctioned government structure for these asylum seekers in Mexico. There are no sponsored shelters. Um, there is nowhere safe for them to be. And there have been multiple murders. Um, there's human traffickers that are like feeding on this population in these border towns. Like it is not a safe place to wait and fight your case, especially when you have nothing. I mean, these people are fleeing with nothing, no money, no belongings, no ability to get a job, no ability to um, pay rent, no ability to find a lawyer, which is pretty important for fighting your asylum case. So, um, you know, one thing I would really like to organize in this election cycle is a real movement to call for not only the end of family separation, not only the end of ICE, not only the end of detention, but actually asylum reform, just full-blown asylum reform, because this process makes no sense. It's immoral, and it's clearly ineffective um, at even getting people who deserve asylum the asylum that they need. So one thing that you mentioned earlier in the interview was the process of sponsorship. What is sponsorship and why is it necessary? So Basically, when a person is detained in um, ICE detention, uh, they have to make parole to get out. Um, it's called, ironically, again, humanitarian parole. Um, and it involves submitting a parole request where they basically prove two things. 
one, that they are not a flight risk, and two, that they're not a danger to society. Um, and in order to do that, they have to have a sponsor. A sponsor is a U.S. citizen who says that they are basically willing to vouch for this person's character, take them in, provide them housing, and um, make sure that they make all of their ICE check-ins and their court dates. So uh, becoming a sponsor is crucial to getting someone out of detention. For any listeners that are interested in becoming sponsors, you can email me directly um, at lark.booking at gmail.com and I can connect you. The um, There is constantly changing protocols about how this works. So most of the networks that are organizing sponsorship are somewhat informal at this point, but there's a lot of knowledge out there and I can connect you to a lot of resources if you're interested in doing this work. Um, the other thing that a sponsor does is provide housing when um, a person gets out of detention. And you know, ultimately, my dream is to try to organize um, entire communities to sponsor entire immigrant communities at a time so that people can like stay connected and not be isolated in different people's houses. But in the meantime, what we need to do is just stretch our understanding of what we're capable of and offer up that couch or that guest room or that attic or even that floor to somebody to get them out of detention because it could literally save their lives and it could keep them from being tortured. Um, and in the process, uh, we also build accompaniment teams and th those are people in communities who can assist with things like giving um, a refugee a ride somewhere, if they need to get to a doctor's appointment, if they need to get to the store, helping them learn English, um, basically helping them build their lives here and get connected to other networks so that they can thrive and they can have the support that they need to both fight their asylum case and also start their new life. So those are all crucial, crucial roles in supporting immigrants right now that I think um, I really recommend that people consider doing, not only because it's the right thing to do and it's our time to step up to do this work, but also because nothing will educate you better about what's going on um, in this horrible system of, um, of, you know, in carceral, um, immigration, like following one person's case through the system. So, um, yeah, like I said, please email me if you're interested in doing this work and finding out more and, um, I can connect you to, uh, get you linked up. So can you talk a little bit about your own experience of being a sponsor? What's been, um, yeah, what's been surprising to you? Um, what have you learned? What's been d difficult about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my case was pretty unique because I had an opportunity to meet Eduardo in Tijuana when I was interviewing before he crossed. So we kind of had an instant bond and I could see that this would probably work out pretty well. He seemed like a really special person who really, um, was, he was, I mean, he was amazing. He was, even though he was an asylum seeker himself, he was volunteering at Al Otro Lado, um, which was this organization I was volunteering with. And he was just a really helpful, super smart, super fun, loving guy. And he said he needed a sponsor. And I just very impulsively said, I'll do it. 
um, not fully knowing what that role was going to be. Um, so I, I said, yes, I gave him my phone number and my name and I wrote a sponsorship letter for him before he crossed. And then I hoped for the best. Uh, weeks passed and I didn't hear from him. And it turns out that he was being tortured during that time. He was being denied food. He wasn't being given a phone call or anything. And I had no idea what had happened to him. And of course, when I finally, when he finally called me, he was super traumatized and distraught. So a big part of my role as sponsor became just providing emotional support for him, which was tough. My Spanish is pretty good, but it's not amazing. <laughs> so, you know, we'd have these long phone calls where like, I would often feel like I'm, I'm my vocabulary is like running low, but he needs someone to talk to. So we'd just try to like talk about anything. Um, and in the process, I was trying to organize resources for him. I was contributing money to his commissary. Um, we were putting together his parole request. And um, I think, I don't know, I think the thing that I just wasn't prepared for, I think nothing can prepare you for, is just hearing about the torture he was enduring, um, finding out that he was sexually assaulted. And, you know, as a, as a white, privileged, educated person, I'm pretty used to being able to navigate bureaucracy and like get things to go my way when I want to. And this was a horrifying situation where I just felt completely powerless. There was nothing that I could do. And I know that a lot of immigration attorneys are going through this right now too. And they're not being allowed to see their clients, right? Like they're not being allowed to go into detention centers. Um, this is why we really need our politicians to step up right now. This is why we need oversight from senators and members of Congress. Um, they need to pull rank and get in there because like, <laughs> I mean, normal privileged white people shit doesn't actually get the job done in this scenario. Like we need, we need the top level of people to, to get things to change. Um, when calling got, the manager is not enough. Yeah, when calling the manager is not enough. You're like, I want to speak to your supervisor. They're like, it's the president. He's good with it. You're like, fuck. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the biggest like eye-opener where I was just like, this can't be real. It can't be real that this innocent guy is getting tortured and I'm yelling my face off into the phone and it's not doing anything. You know, like that was just a really it was a real paradigm shift for me to understand the world that we're really living in and how widespread this is and how the higher ups really don't give a shit. In fact, this is what they're going for. Um, and I don't, I think you can like learn about some of this stuff on the news, but until you really see it play out, um, you just, you just don't really know how bad it is. Um, I will say, though, in our case with Eduardo, there was this very incredible happy ending. Um, Eduardo, uh, in his first, well, first of all, his parole request was denied, even though we got two members of Congress and uh, and multiple members of clergy and like 10 different letters from the community vouching for his character. And, you know, we did, we went through all, jumped through all the hoops of this parole request. It was denied. And Eduardo was, um, very, uh, very pessimistic about his odds and I don't blame him. And he decided to self-deport back to Mexico, which 
I think a lot of people don't really understand how much that's happening. Um, I think that there's this idea that if you decide to self-deport, it's because you realize you didn't have a very good asylum claim. And that's not true. A lot of people are self-deporting because they are being tortured and not being released from a, a horrible, you know, prison or concentration camp and they just give up and they're and they feel the way that Eduardo felt and this is what he said in his first appearance in front of a judge he said I'd rather I'd rather die in Mexico than die here and so he asked for deportation and then the judge was like well if you're going to if I'm going to sign your deportation order I need you to say that you feel safe going back to Mexico and he refused to say that he he said no I don't feel safe going back to Mexico and then the judge said well then why, why do you want to self-deport? And he said this thing. He said, um, I'd rather die in Mexico than die here in jail. And so then the judge was like, well, what do you mean? Why do you think you're going to die here? And then he said under oath in, you know, in this courtroom, he described all of the torture he had been through in ICE detention. And the judge decided to hold his asylum hearing right then and there on the spot. Uh, and Eduardo gave testimony about the violence he had faced in Mexico, um, seeing his brother get killed, being kidnapped by the cartel, being tortured, and having them chase him all over Mexico. And the judge granted him asylum. And as far as we know, it was the quickest asylum case in all U.S. history. So Eduardo is now a legal resident of the United States. He had, he won asylum. He is working full time at a great job that he loves where he has full benefits. He's got better benefits than I have. Um, and he's just thriving and it's, it's been an incredible privilege and, uh, just such a, such a rewarding experience to see him, um, go through this process and come out on the other side successful. Unfortunately, it is a very, very, very rare, story. Um, but it is really worth celebrating. And, um, you know, it's, that's something I couldn't have expected is to see a happy ending, um, to this, to this whole story. So that's another reason to become a sponsor. You never know somebody might actually win and you get to be part of that. And that's a really, really special thing. So, for folks who, I mean, you've spoken to this a little bit earlier in the podcast, but for people who are hearing about these conditions and just horrible, horrible situations in ICE facilities, like what can people do? I know become a sponsor. Um, what are some other actions that our listeners can take? I highly encourage listeners to look into what immigrant-led organizations are doing in their area. It really varies um, area by area. And I think that there's a lot of people, especially, um, you know, fairly privileged folks that maybe haven't done a lot of activism around this issue before, who are sort of wanting to get involved for the first time. And that's great. We need everybody. But we also need folks to understand the work that's happening locally on the ground um, so, you know, there's a lot of detention centers throughout the country. And for each one of those detention centers, there's often groups that organize volunteers to go visit detainees 
um, to there are groups that organize funds for um, detainees commissaries. And it's important to know that your commissary is really your lifeline. People are being fed basically ramen packets and frozen or moldy food. So the commissary is often their only food. It's their only way to to get a toothbrush. And they have to buy food. They have to buy their own food. They have to buy their own food. They have to buy their own jackets. Um, So, uh, so it's, it's really like, it's not just like, oh, this is like some extra like candy or something like the commissary is everything. So um, getting detainees, their commissaries, getting them visitors, writing them letters, um, you know, check out, try to figure out if there's a detention center near you and then figure out the groups that are supporting detainees in those detention centers. Um, you can also volunteer at the border. I highly recommend coming to the border and getting plugged in with the groups there if you speak Spanish or another language that's going to be helpful and if you can come for more than a week. Um, sometimes folks can only come for a day or so and it can actually end up being something of a burden for the people on the ground who are sort of working these absurd 18-hour days, putting out fires nonstop. So um, if you have the flexibility and the language skills, you are desperately needed. Please, please go to the border. You can... um, Alo Chulado is an excellent organization that I volunteered with a few times. Kate, I know you've raised money for them. Um, and uh, you can check them out at alotrolado.org. And then there's always donating. If you don't have the time and you don't have the language skills and you don't know how to get involved, that is totally cool. You don't actually have to do the work. There's a lot of people who are already doing the work, but they need funds and they need support. So I highly recommend donating to um, Al Otro Lado. Um, and we can list a few other organizations that are, are good organizations to donate to um, at, in the show notes. Awesome. In terms of looking at, you know, potentially political solutions, what would you say that people who really care about this issue should keep in mind? I was so excited to see um, is Julian Castro, right? That's the name of the. Yes. Yes. Okay. I was so excited to see Julian Castro's comments during the first uh, primary debates because those are the first concrete uh, policy proposals that I've really seen around asylum reform and around the. Um, militarized carceral state that we've built at the border. I think that we need to be pushing our candidates to make concrete, real policy proposals that result in the complete closure of ICE and the end of detention centers completely. I don't want to just hear families belong together. That is like the most tame, obvious not radical statement you could possibly make about the current situation. We need yeah. to see like real asylum reform. Yeah, I hate that too. It's like, oh yeah, you know, put the whole family in jail together, even yeah. when they did <laughs> nothing wrong. Like that is, <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. It's kind of funny actually sometimes too, because you see like when you do this work, sometimes you see a bunch of different people from different like immigrant rights organizations talking and the families belong together people. Sometimes you're like, Ugh 
stop sucking up all the air in the room. Like, yeah, we know families belong together, but like we've got other stuff to talk about too. But of course, like that's what, you know, look, I get it. Family separation is what got me activated about this. It's fucking horrible. It's like some of the most upsetting shit we've heard about our government doing in a long time. But there's other there's other deeper problems at play here, which is like, honestly, I want to see the closure of ICE. I don't think it's a government agency that needs to exist. I think it should just fucking die. And I don't think that people need to be in jails. I also don't think that borders need to be militarized. We have borders between states and between cities. And sure, maybe people should enter without citizenship or something, or there could be some process, but it, it could be a bureaucratic process. It does not need to be a criminal one. I absolutely agree with that. Um, and, you know, just for the record, I do think that families belong together, but I do not <laughs> yeah. think that families belong in jail. Um, agreed. Agreed. Families do yeah. belong to get together. Yes. But not in jail. <laughs> but not in jail. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So um, just kind of wrapping up here, uh, can you talk a little bit about your music and where we can find you? Totally. Yeah. I, I, um, I make confrontational music that's catchy. I think that's the latest way I've been describing it. Um, and uh, you can find my music at rachellark.com. I mostly write about like sex and feminism and stuff. And um, you and I have written some, some uh, headbangers together for sure. But I recently have expanded, you know, I'm trying to write about capitalism and immigration and all right, Rachel, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much to our listeners. Please definitely check out Rachel's music. It's really good. Um, it's, uh, you know, some of it's about dicks. Some of it is about more more serious topics. Um, and I know that I really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rachel. Thanks, Kate. Love you. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, which is O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our Reply Guys. They are always with us. Bernie? Take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land. land.